Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Digital Voices. So pumped to talk about a new topic for us. And I have my friend and someone who I helped write a chapter in a medical book for, we'll get into that a little bit later, but Dr. Kim Noel, she also has a master's in public health. So she has this amazing background. You'll hear more about that in her story. Very, what I would call it, sort of a collection of, of a lot of different things helping people. And now as the medical director with 23andMe. So it's going to be a really cool discussion. And before we get there, Megan, I wanted to ask you, have you ever gotten tested, like a genetic test of any sort? I haven't. It's really interesting, and I would love to. I feel like it, you can really uncover a lot of things, anything from like your cancer risk to genetic things that you could pass along to your children. So it's I'm open to it, but I've not had it done. Yeah, we've had it done a couple different times, a couple different ways, more out of curiosity about our background and our heritage, you know, and so we thought we were all from Germany. And we are from Germany, like the last generation, we're all German, but certainly given, especially the size of Europe, there's a lot of migration in and out. So if you're from Europe, you're not from one country, you're from a lot of different countries. And I think people are always shocked to find that out. But anyways, it's kind of a cool thing. But yeah, the medical implications, like you're suggesting, Megan, have tremendous possibilities. So if you haven't done it, I highly recommend it. So with Kim, I think Kim, the first time we met, I don't know the very first time, but I know we worked together on a project and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I was like super humbled. Like you reached out with your co-author for the, on a medical book that you've written and asked for some contributions on different chapters. And so that was a, a super fun process. And I really appreciated all of our interactions. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is great. So one thing everyone always wants to know first up is what's on your playlist? So what sort of songs do you like to listen to? I love that. I'm the person who you can't put my playlist on shuffle because there's so many different songs. But lately I've been listening to Poolside by Jeffrey Paradise. It's known as Daytime Disco. (laughs) It's pretty fun. They did a remake of Harvest Moon. That's fun. I'm going to look that up. That's a fun part for me too. And I'm sure our listeners is, you know, we kind of get stuck sometime in our own genres and we don't expand ourselves. But whenever we have guests and they talk about music, you know, it's like fantastic because I usually afterwards will download whatever they talked about and uh, listen to that. So daytime disco, I really like the name of that genre. Yeah, the disc is poolside. <laughs> okay, I'm getting it. So what is your passion or life message or mantra? Are there sort of like words that sort of guide you and help you in all your decision making in life? Yeah, my mantra is pretty simple. It's breathe. I think the notion of taking a breath, taking pause, connecting is so relevant. A new mom. So definitely that aspect of deep breathing has been helpful in multiple parts of my life. But I think it's a good way to control and comfort and also put into perspective any challenge that you're facing. Yeah, I like that. Congratulations. I knew as we were finishing the book, you had given birth and congratulations on being a new mom. And I'm sure you're fantastic at it. So you've already revealed a little bit to us about your personal and professional journey. And I just find it fascinating, you know, as I look at your professional career, just the different roles and responsibilities that you've had. And now, wow, you know, medical director of 23andMe, 
that's pretty cool. So can you uh, go a little deeper with us, either both on the personal professional side, sort of how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. I have not had a straight path. I started my journey in medicine not really fitting in anywhere. In college, I was interested in many subjects. I was a public policy major, but a chemistry minor. So ultimately, I was thinking of global health policy on one side and bench science on the other. And as a medical student, I was really interested in global health. And George Washington University had a strong program. So I, in medical school, went to Ethiopia with the surgical missions throughout the country. I was mentored by Dr. Peter Hotez, the famous vaccine expert who inspired me to learn more about rare diseases, tropical medicine, and health disparities. And I got to intern at the World Health Organization in Geneva. So after all of these amazing global experiences, I start my clinical rotations back in various local hospitals in DC. And I was struggling. As a systems thinker, I was having a hard time focusing, not focusing on the broader problems of healthcare and just thinking about the disease process of the patient. And at first I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician because I love children. But my experience on that rotation was a rude awakening to the ills of the electronic medical record as most of the rotation I was helping an overtired intern type up discharge summaries. And that was real on-the-job training that I didn't want to become a lifestyle. And I then had a really formative experience on my surgical rotation, unfortunately during a traumatic mass shooting of the Holocaust Museum and GW being the number one trauma center of the National Mall, I had scrubbed in on all of these cases as a student. And it was a pivotal moment making me feel that maybe I could do it all. Maybe I could be this public health surgeon working on the root causes of health disparities and treating the victims of it at the same time. And I remember my surgical interviews. You know, I was interviewing at a prestigious Ivy League institution and those surgeons were not getting it, right? These are people who've perfected years and years of surgical subspecialty and they didn't get my passion for bridging global health to the challenges of the OR. But I took some time, I took a year off and I did a master's of public health at Johns Hopkins and I did meet surgeons there that understood my vision. And retrospectively, now I understand that they had sizable grants or many of them were retired but nonetheless, my passion for surgery was encouraged, and I did a trial year of surgery in Boston, which is not typical either. I had a hard time committing to a life path in medicine. So I didn't fit in there. I kept thinking of, again, the systemic problems. As a surgical intern, it was more about the hospital readmissions. I was caring for these high-risk patients. We were discharging from the hospital. And as soon as I finished the hospital discharge summary, lo and behold, they're in the emergency room again, and I'm writing the admission notes and those orders. And I felt kind of the futility of it. And I was haunted by my public health training and thinking that maybe surgery isn't the solution. I was treating gunshot victims, patients who needed bariatric surgery, and I had to find a way to reconnect to medicine. And I took time. I took some time off and tried to think about what I could do, which is, again, unheard of when considering the sizable medical debt we take on and the risk to reputation. But I really needed to have that journey to reconnect. And ultimately, I discovered preventive medicine in which public health is foundational 
And I started working and meeting experts in, you know, social determinants of health, working in public health departments, working with tech for the first time. And I found my people, I belonged and I thrived in that environment. And ultimately the projects and problem solving turned into a job. I was helping improve quality measures and implementing tech solutions. And ultimately I became the uh, deputy chief medical information officer, the telehealth director of the health system and the chief quality officer of the family medicine department at Stony Brook, which was a notion that when you start solving problems, there are many problems people bring to you and uh, you build that responsibility. And, but the telehealth was really my passion and It was the COVID pandemic that skyrocketed the need for telehealth, which was validating and also catalytic in my pursuit of harnessing tech and healthcare. So I feel like my journey has been a lot of twists and turns, but it ultimately brought me to my passion, which is thinking about systems, thinking about implementing tech solutions and trying to improve healthcare. No, that's awesome. I love the missional focus and the fact that you didn't, it would have been easy, right? Because I think we probably all do it and feel that pull to just, we have these passions and life happens and we just allow ourselves to be confined because that's the right thing to do. That's what most people do. They just accept that. It's like, okay, this is my lot in life. I'm going to accept it. But you kept pushing, you know, no, I don't, this isn't right. Perfect for me. It's not the right thing. I don't feel 100% congruent with it or aligned with it. And you kept pushing till you found sort of your niche and then you did really well. And that's, that's really encouraging because I think a lot of times we're just forced, right? We're in a standardized way. You do this, you go to this school, you do this internship, you do this residency, and then you do this. And maybe along the way, that doesn't resonate with who you are. And so you need to be open and flexible. So you're a very inspirational example of that. And today, 23andMe, and for those, I think everyone knows, but just in case, for those who don't know, can you just share a little bit about 23andMe generally, what you all do? Yes, absolutely. I'm proud to say that 23andMe has gone public this last year. And 23andMe is a direct-to-consumer genetics company. And we use genotyping to provide health insights as well as ancestry. We're known a lot from our ancestry work, but also in terms of our scientific research, the discoveries that we've made in healthcare. We are one of the largest population health screeners for BRCA. And a lot of people who don't traditionally uh, know about genetic information learn for the first time that they may be at risk for certain diseases through our product. So I'm proud to be part of their healthcare operations team. Yeah, that's cool. And that's kind of like what Megan and I were talking about right in the beginning. She had this uh, focus sort of on the medical prognosis, the science. I was into it at first more around, where did I come from? My ancestry aspect of it. And then, so it's good. It's great to have both. And obviously, we already sort of talked about in your training and your education, you already had this bent towards tech, towards digital, sort of an early adopter, especially with telemedicine pre-pandemic. And so uh, with 23andMe, you obviously clearly are on the cutting edge with technology, right? With digital capabilities. Absolutely. The company has just doubled down in their commitment to healthcare. We are providing virtual services. And it's been very exciting because the company had acquired Lemonade Health. And we are now rethinking how can we help our consumers benefit from the human genome in their everyday pursuits of understanding their health. And so it's very exciting to see 
how we leverage the tools of telehealth to help our consumers discover their genetics and also start to apply the insights in ways that are meaningful for them. Yeah. And I love that because, you know, I've struggled here and there and everyone does, especially as you age, you're going to have different medical things. And you're generally speaking, again, this is not anything negative on our current healthcare system, but your PCP and specialists are probably not looking at, they're just going to give you some more tests and some more drugs and see, they're not looking holistically. And so the fact that you all go direct to consumer and the consumer can empower themselves and then help their physician. You can't rely, my personal thing is you can't rely on your physician for your health. You got to take charge of your own health. And so something like 23andMe is something you should lever. And then you'll have to bring that back though, probably to your physicians who are not looking at all that there because it goes back to that, hey, this is the way I was trained. This is the standard. You know, this is how things go. What about, I just had this quick question because I'm co-authoring a book with Chris Ross from the Mayo Clinic and on sort of patient and kind of what we're talking about right now, sort of patient ownership of their health. And you also, if I recall, I put together cohorts of people like me. If I find out I have a propensity towards prostate cancer, I might be able to find a cohort of other patients like me. Yeah, we haven't. I can't discuss like the details of what we're working on right now, although we're really excited to share those insights shortly with our consumers and the public. But the key here is that we see our consumers as partners in this journey and in that self-discovery. And we have 80% of our consumers opt into novel research that allows them to get these kind of insights. When you get genotype from our product, you look, we are able to show you from the database how your personal genotype reflects against the average of other people who've contributed to this robust scientific database. So it's really exciting because the future could entail a lot of different healthcare opportunities, allowing people to maybe share information if they so choose. We very much value privacy, consent, and we want to see our consumers as partners in our scientific endeavors. Yeah, I love that. You all are doing great work. And so I appreciate that. Let's shift towards the book. So I mentioned in the beginning that you and I spent more time together related to this book. So can you tell us a little bit about the book and sort of the mission of the book? Absolutely. So in the rapid implementation of telehealth in most health systems during the pandemic, we realized that there's this notion, even though telehealth has existed since the inceptions of computers, right? Some say that the first telephone call by Edison was telehealth, applied for telehealth. So telehealth has existed for a long time, but the notion of how to integrate telehealth into the healthcare system seemed to be a barrier and one we couldn't afford. And I was happy to have the foresight of this before the pandemic to start thinking about One, how do we empower interprofessional teams to implement telehealth well and practice telehealth across specialties? And we know that in the current healthcare system, teams aren't always optimally effective. And then you add in the virtual component and it could be quite disruptive. And so what, you know, Dr. Renee Fabus and I had started to think about was creating an educational foundation that would allow us to say, okay, like here's the book. Here are people who are experts who have implemented tech solutions for healthcare in various settings. And we can't say then that telehealth is 
not foundational to medicine. And so that was the attempt to address that. And then we also started to become very aware of the widening disparities that were exacerbated in the pandemic. And so we had coined the social determinants of telehealth, right? Thinking about digital literacy and access to tech, et cetera, and the cultural implications of implementing telehealth. And so we have really interesting topics on that. We also had interesting topics on disability and telehealth. So all of these topics that were very important to me in my profession, implementing telehealth for an academic medical center was the passion that got me inspired to help train future clinical teams. And I was honored to work with people like yourself, people that I respect in the field to pass on that wisdom. So we talked at the top, Kim, about the book that you and Renee have co-authored with contributors. And what's the name of the book? And is it only for those in academia or can anyone buy it? Anyone can buy the book. It's published by Elsevier and it's available on Amazon. And the book is called Telehealth, Incorporating Interprofessional Practice for Healthcare Professionals in the 21st Century. Cool. And the book came out not too long ago. Is it this year or did it come out late last year? Yeah, in June. So fresh off the press in the UK and in the US. Yeah. And I really encourage people to go out and purchase that book because as you said, you, you had tremendous contributors and yourselves, physicians providing the overall oversight of the book. And it was quite good. Can you share, sometimes people in our audience want to write a book. Can you just share a quick snippet? Like, would you do it again? What was the hardest part? Anything like that? Absolutely. Well, writing is hard. I think editing is harder. (laughs) Editing requires me to review other people's work and keep everyone kind of on track and in uh, unifying disparate kind of concepts to make a unified project. It was also editing the textbook with people who were really responsible for running telehealth during the pandemic. And we're not, you know, they really, this was a labor of love in dedicating their time that I very much valued, but that was very much challenged. But it was because it's important. It to uh, think of the mission. And I think writing in terms of the chapters that I had written, it was grounding for me to build a sensation of true foundations of the field by revisiting the history of telehealth. And I very much delved into a deeper appreciation for the integration of technologies in various spaces. I was reading about telehealth in outer space and telehealth in in many different settings. And it's fun to feel like we are part of that history now with COVID and the pandemic and our implementation. So, Yeah, I'd be interested in your perspective on this because I definitely have one, but I'm going to defer to you first. And that is, you know, with telehealth, as you mentioned, it's been around a long time. I mean, we were doing this in the 90s, like when I first got my career. And, but we saw very little adoption. So let's just say, Average of average, 1% of outpatient visits. And then the pandemic hits. And for some organizations, it went to 80, 90%. Sort of the average of average. I mean, people can argue a few percentage points here and there, but like 50, 60% outpatient visits. And now that sort of average of average that I read about, it's dipped below 15, maybe headed towards 10. And it maybe because I have this bias because I'm in digital and all that kind of stuff, but I was kind of shocked that it went down as far as it did. What's your perspective? Are you shocked? And why do you think it's gone down as much as it has? Well, I definitely 
feel saddened by the dip of the application of technology, but I think it is a testament to how the healthcare system is resistant to change and how much the levers of reimbursement and the financial structures are at play in terms of how we invest in innovations. And I started my career at Stony Brook being kind of the uh, technology wunderkind, you know, of something that was research oriented and interesting pilots, but not core and essential to having those same research projects be foundational in how we implemented telehealth at scale across the system. And I was very much close to that work. And to start to see that dip was disparaging, right? And because especially for the disabled, uh, for the high-risk patients, for low-income patients who are elderly patients in nursing homes, those people should not be exposed to COVID. And I feel very passionately that we cannot afford to ignore technology in healthcare. And yet, that's how I feel the pandemic management has ultimately led. So I think there is hope And I hope that some of the listeners of this program are also inspired to continue to pioneer in terms of applying digital health in traditional healthcare spaces, because we save lives with telehealth. Yeah. No, you and I are kindred spirits, which is not surprising. On this topic, I was profoundly disappointed, profoundly disappointed, and couldn't really understand. But some of the things that you explained kind of explains, right, the resistance change policy but yeah, because I always thought, thought of telehealth as a great equalizer. So not completely, right? Because people, some populations don't have access to band, the appropriate bandwidth and things like that. So it's not like the only answer, but it certainly helped, like in some of the populations you just described. So I was really, like, I took it really personal, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I like hurt by it. It's like, oh, no. But to your point, hopefully we did learn a lot. We converted more more clinicians and other digital leaders to understanding of the power. And so maybe it just takes that dip. And then now that we've had this experience, we can now apply it because we know for sure it's not a tech issue at all. Absolutely. And I took it personally. And I think it was part of the driver for me to think of moving into industry and working with talent that for me, it was unprecedented collaborations in Silicon Valley with the designers and engineers. And you see that the technology is not the barrier. We need healthcare minds to be able to solve problems that the technology is most amenable to solve. And I think that's what I love about my current job is being able to work with that talent. But I see myself potentially swinging back <laughs> and trying to impact the traditional health system or perhaps it will be disrupted externally. I can't foresee the future, but... Well, yeah, and that's something I've been uh, known to talk about, and not a lot of people like that message, but I'm always saying, like, if we don't do it ourselves, we will be disrupted externally, and it's happening already. And so in some way, so again, I get sad, because I wish we would do it ourselves, but then I'm like, no, if that's what it takes, this external disruptors, then that's what it takes because ultimately it's about the patient and their family and their experience. And so whatever it takes. But yeah, we're very positive though. We still have a lot of hope. And I'm so glad there's people like you out there, Kim, who are doing great job and put your in multiple ways, right? Whether it's the book, the thought leadership, the stuff with social determinants of telehealth, what you're doing at 23andMe. So you're a great leader, clearly. And so I always love to ask leaders questions 
around how they keep themselves sharp. So, you know, life happens, right? You have kids, you have family, different things go on and a social life. And at the same time, it's like you don't want your leadership capabilities to decrease. So what are some things that you do that keep you sharp? So I try to self-reflect on areas of growth. And in this year, I'm really trying to focus on the art of listening, active listening. And I have really found that to be challenging to really not speak to influence, but more ask questions to better understand. And so I think I've learned most, I've grown most this year in trying to perfect that skill. Um, The other things that I realized, I've usually a perfectionist as many of us are, and I would berate myself if I wasn't exercising, you know, for hours or doing something. And now with the baby and with COVID, I started doing like Peloton for 20 minutes and just get on the bike, just get, you know, and that has made me foundationally appreciate consistency over extremes. So those are kind of things that are keeping me on point lately. Yeah, I like that. And a fair amount of our audience are clinicians. And so I know some of them are just dabbling in tech and want to get more involved. Is there any, you obviously made this great curve in your experience, you know, going from all the things you talked about, being a clinician, researcher, all those kind of things and digital Are there any one or two pointers or pieces of advice that you might give to clinicians that thinking about going more full-time as a CMIO or, you know, whatever? Absolutely. I would say get to problem solving. That's how I carved my career in approaching people and saying, you know, what problems are you struggling with and offering solutions? I think doctors are closest to the technologies that fail them and their insights are absolutely essential. And so I've seen many doctors create new careers by digging into the issues. And now we have formalized training. There are fellowships in clinical informatics as a way to excel professionally. And I would encourage physicians to take a little risk. You know, we are very risk averse and our world needs change and change requires that risk. Yeah, that's good stuff. We talked about so much, Kim. Again, your whole mission focus is very inspirational. The career that you've woven for yourself and how you didn't accept sort of that standard mode. So I learned a lot. Uh, we're talking about social determinants of telehealth. Talk a lot about 23 and me and the great work that you're doing there. We talked about telehealth, talked about the book, covered a lot of things, leadership, what you're doing to stay on point and what other clinicians can do. I love the thought. You said something to the effect of that the clinicians are closest to the tech that fails them. So I love that, right? And you're absolutely right. They're the ones that have to use it and what works and what doesn't. And therefore, they've got a lot of insights and should get involved. So I thought that was a great quote. So is there anything else that we failed to talk about that you'd like to mention or a topic that we didn't talk about, but you wanted to say something more? I'll leave you with the last word. I would like to double down on the importance of acknowledging doctors' lived experiences especially as colleagues are continuing the fight in COVID and their experiences need to be validated and integrated into this healthcare change. And so I hope that the future integrates this human art of doctoring with the convenience and the progress and the analytical insights from tech. And I hope that those listening can feel that they're part of that digital transformation in best ways that can help their patients. Yeah, I love that. We can't forget the human aspect of all this. And that's a great way to end this episode. So Kim, thank you so much for being my guest. It's great to reconnect. People should go out there, buy the book, 
out on Amazon right now. I don't say this because I was a contributor, but Renee and Kim did an excellent job as editors and there's some great insights in that book. So go out and get that book. And thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you next week on Digital Voices. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.